on Friday after he died. They took Jesus' body down from the cross and they wrapped it in a linen shroud. They laid it in a tomb that was cut into stone. And the sun was setting by this time on Friday. Saturday was coming quickly. And Saturday was the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath is a commanded day of rest. And so they weren't able to fully prepare the body of Christ for his burial in the way that they had hoped. They would have to wait until Sunday after the Sabbath was done. The women who had come with him from Galilee saw how his body was laid in the tomb for themselves. Then they left. They prepared spices and ointments in order to bring them back on Sunday to finish what it was that they had started. And then Saturday came. April 4th in the year 33, a dark day of confusion and disorientation for his friends, his followers, sorrow, grief. They must have been talking to each other, recounting the events of this past week. So much had happened, processing it, trying to make sense out of all that they had seen. Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, the way that he was received as a Messiah, their final meal together as they celebrated Passover, his betrayal, his arrests, the trials, the guilty verdict, the agonizing and shameful torture and death. And I imagine that they would have been recalling everything that they had heard him say while he was on that cross, discussing it with one another. The promise that he had made to the thief on the cross who was next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. His cry of being forsaken. And that puzzling statement that he said, it is finished maybe speaking together with one another, trying to figure out what did that mean? And then, of course, his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then there was that eerie darkness that fell over the land for hours at a time as Jesus neared that moment of death. And then after his death, that tragic irony that the Roman centurion was the one who recognized that surely this man was innocent, this man was righteous. This Roman centurion, a Gentile who was involved in the crucifixion, recognized Jesus as an innocent sufferer. But he had died. That much was obvious. There was no mistaking that. They had seen him breathe out his last. They had put him in the tomb. And that is not at all what they expected. They expected him to deliver Israel from their Roman captivity as a conquering king, But now that he had died, they fully assumed that he would remain dead. That much is clear in today's passage that Diana just read for us. That's hard for us to imagine after 2,000 years of Christian history. But on that Sunday morning, the women had only come back into the tomb in order to continue to prepare his body. They were finishing those burial preparations, fully expecting to find his body there. They didn't come for brunch and a worship service. They were perplexed to find what they found there. They assumed that his body would still be there. The apostles themselves didn't believe it either. These were the folks who were the closest to Jesus, who had heard his teaching for years. And yet, 
they found his bodily resurrection from the dead difficult to believe. They had seen Jesus perform miraculous resurrections during their time with him, but they didn't anticipate that he would raise himself from the dead. My prayer this morning is that if you're here and you're doubtful, that you would be honest with yourself about those doubts, that you would put you into the company of his earliest followers, his apostles, his disciples. But then beyond that, I'd encourage you to suspend your skepticism for this morning and to continue to track with this experience as those first followers went to the tomb and found it empty and the apostles witnessed the same. Let's track along with them as they move from confusion to disbelief to joy and eventually to loving trust. The big idea for the sermon this morning is this. Jesus's astonishing resurrection from the dead was verified by his empty tomb, an angelic announcement, his own words, and his empty burial cloths. We're going to walk through this text with four different movements, and they're these. First, Jesus's empty tomb bore witness to his resurrection. We'll see that in verses one to three. Second, angels confirmed his resurrection, verses 4 to 5. And then third, Jesus' words anticipated his resurrection, verses 6 to 9. Fourth, Jesus' empty burial cloths pointed to his resurrection, from verses 10 through 12. Before we start, let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us picture what this must have been like for those first eyewitnesses of your resurrection. The way that they were perplexed, mystified, wondering, marveling at what they had heard and seen. Father, would you help us by your spirit this morning enter into that to take the truth of your resurrection as the shocking thing that it actually truly is that we might be able to leave here this morning with great joy and hope for today and tomorrow, knowing that you have been able to reconcile all things to yourself through the blood of the cross. Help us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Jesus' empty tomb bore witness to his resurrection. I'll just read those first three verses for us back into our hearing one more time. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So as those women, as the they there who had prepared those spices and those ointments, they had come back. They were going to finish preparing his body for burial And they came early in the morning, early towards dawn on that Sunday morning to his tomb. You may wonder why Resurrection Sunday is sometimes referred to as Easter. And maybe you've heard the fake news on the interwebs that says that it's related to the the worship of an Akkadian goddess of fertility named Ishtar. But that's fake news. The consensus is that the Latin word for dawn 
sunrise, that Latin word was translated into Old German as the word for east, uh, the direction, of course, where the rising, dawning sun comes from. So it's most likely that our English word Easter means a festival that relates to the east, where the day begins to dawn. So they come to the tomb early at the dawn, and they see the tomb. The tomb would have had a large rolled round stone in front of it in order to keep away grave robbers. And here's a sketch of what that might have looked like. You can see in the sketch, they've sort of drawn a, a cut angle into it so you can see into what that tomb would have looked like inside. But there's this large stone that was meant to be difficult to move by, by design. But as they approached the tomb, the women found that that stone was rolled away. It was not covering the entrance of the tomb. Not only was the stone moved, but they could see that the body that they had seen in that spot was gone. Now track with me for a minute. If we keep reading Luke chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, we will see after this resurrection that Jesus' body was able to vanish from sight. So his resurrection body is the same body, but it's qualitatively different. And so he's, he's walking along the road. There's these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he walks up alongside them, and he speaks to these two disciples for a while, and they don't recognize who it is at first. It wasn't until they broke bread together, Jesus breaks the bread, blesses it, and gives it to them, that they were able to recognize in that moment, oh, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, the guy who we've been speaking to, this is him. And then it says in verse 31, he vanished from their sight. Okay. That raises an interesting question in my mind as I'm reading through this narrative. If Jesus' resurrection body was able to vanish, why do you think the stone was rolled away? He didn't need to move the stone to get out of the tomb, is the point. Why was the stone rolled away? I was helped this week thinking through this by someone who noted that the stone wasn't moved so that Jesus could get out. The stone was moved so that the women could get in. They had seen where his body was laying on that Friday night. And now it's Sunday morning, and they're able, as soon as they walk up to it, to walk right in in front of it and find out that that is the same tomb, but his body isn't there. The tomb was empty. They were invited in to see the evidence of his resurrection. The gospel, according to Luke, the one that we're reading from this morning, was written by a man who was not himself an eyewitness to the events of the resurrection, but someone named Theophilus asked him to make an orderly account of the things that he had heard about the life and ministry of Jesus, and so Luke agreed to do that, and he investigated it, wrote these things down, and talked to the eyewitnesses, and, and has uh, uh, recorded for us in the gospel according to Luke that we have. It's interesting to note that we don't have a record of anyone witnessing the resurrection event itself. No one witnessed his soul returning to his body in that dark tomb early on that Sunday morning. No one saw his heart begin to pump again, the color of life begin to return to his flesh, the synapses beginning to fire and his muscles moving again. What we do have are the eyewitness accounts of the effects of his resurrection. The first of which is the fact that the tomb in which he laid was now vacant and 
that discovery, that shocking first discovery, was made by women. And according to Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, he said that the testimony of women wasn't even admitted in court because of their low status in society. And so if these early Christians were making up stories of this resurrection, they could have picked more credible witnesses to make the story built up, to twist it, to try to strongman the argument. But they didn't need to do that because the tomb was empty. They didn't have to change the story. This is just what happened. It wasn't a story they needed to twist or modify. In fact, in Luke 24 verse 10, if you look down a little bit later in our text, it actually gives the names of those women who came to the tomb to find it empty. It's as if Luke is saying, hey, these are their names. If you want to go ask them, go find them and ask them. In just about seven weeks from this resurrection morning, in this same city, when the Holy Spirit comes down at that event we call Pentecost, the apostles would begin to preach about this, this resurrection of this Christ here in the same city in Jerusalem. And if his body was still in that tomb, people could have just opened that tomb and seen, well, no, guys, his body is still here. That didn't happen. In fact, the Christian faith grows very quickly there in that same city. So we have an encouragement that, that, I, that I would love for us to in, embrace here this morning in the the testimony of these women, the example of these first women who shared the message of the resurrection. I wonder if, as a Christian, you've ever felt like you don't, you don't have the credibility that you think you would need in order to share the news of the gospel with other people. Almost as if we forget that in evangelism, when we're sharing the gospel, what we're sharing is not the good news of ourselves and how great we are, but the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. These women probably didn't hesitate, you can imagine, to share what they had witnessed. It wasn't out of fear of retribution. They, didn't, they weren't worried about sounding credible. They saw this and they needed people to know. The testimony that they were sharing wasn't, wasn't primarily about themselves. It was primarily about Jesus doing what he said he was going to do. Their joy overtook their sorrow on that Easter morning. And the first thing they needed to do was to share that with others. But they didn't anticipate this resurrection. In fact, we can see that clearly spelled out for us in the next two verses where angels confirmed his resurrection, point two. The angels confirmed his resurrection, verses four through five. I'll read those again. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? So these women who had come now to the empty tomb were perplexed by the empty tomb. The stone is away, they can see inside, they are puzzled by what they see, or rather what they don't see. They're at a loss for an explanation. You can imagine it would be difficult to bear the grief of losing the body in addition to losing Jesus himself. And just then, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, bright, shining clothes. And we know from other gospel accounts that these men were angels. Angels come to earth in Scripture as men in other places as well. 
And just as angels had announced the shocking good news of Jesus' birth, now these angels have returned to share the shocking good news of his resurrection. And the women, who were shocked by that sudden appearance of the angels, bowed their faces down in terror, reverence, awe. And the angels asked them what I kind of take to be a rhetorical question, why are you looking for Jesus in a graveyard? It's almost as if the angels were surprised that the women were surprised. Why would you be looking for the living one among these corpses? This is still a tendency for us today. Non-Christians who don't believe in Jesus' supernatural bodily resurrection still believe Jesus existed. Only the most unusual historian tries to say that Jesus never actually existed. He never lived. But they think of him as a sort of tragic dead prophet, only a great example of self-sacrificing love, or perhaps as a victim of religious or governmental tyranny. He's an amazing role model, and of course we'd have to do justice to the fact that his teaching was very obviously powerful, powerful enough that he became the most important human who ever existed. So it's worth listening to what he said, but he studied only for his example. He studied as if he was dead. He has studied for his philosophy. He has studied for his ethic. He studied for his sociological impact in human history, but he's treated as though he were still dead. And the warning is there for us as Christians as well. Even in our finest theological study and our distinctions, we want to study Christ in order to know Christ, not as a a dead butterfly that we've pinned down in order to examine all of his parts. We study carefully, rigorously, shooting for accuracy because we want to know him and the power of his resurrection that we may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's language in Philippians 3. This is the purpose of studying the person of Christ as a living one, no longer dead. As we gather to worship him here this morning, Jesus is alive. Jesus is here by his spirit. If you came here this morning just to remember that he resurrected from the dead some 2,000 years ago, Here's a powerful reminder that he is still alive. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is actively present here among us as his people, even now. But the angelic messengers move beyond that rhetorical question, and they draw attention to Jesus' own words in the next verses. Let's notice that together in point three. Jesus' words anticipate his resurrection, verses six through nine. We'll read those verses again. The angels say, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So the women now had seen the empty tomb. 
They had heard from these angelic messengers. The reason that he's not there actually is because he's no longer dead. He is risen. He is alive. But what happens next is so important. Notice where the angels point the direction, the attention of those women. These women, who we know were with him in Galilee, would have heard his teaching. They would have known what he had taught. And Jesus taught many times that he would rise on the third day. This is what he said while he was ministering in Galilee. This is our call to worship text that we've already gone through. Is Luke 9, 22. It says this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he repeated it on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem as well in Luke chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So what these angels are doing here is that they have the empty tomb, they have their own testimony, but more important to the angels themselves is that they know Jesus' words. They point them back. Don't you remember what he said? He promised that he would rise on the third day. If you don't take anything else away from this service here this morning, friends, please take away this. Trust the words of Jesus. The Christian faith must be taken in as a whole system of thought. We can make a defense for the resurrection. We can demonstrate that it's not irrational, that there's good historical evidence for it. We have the empty tomb. We have an angelic announcement. We have Jesus' own words, his own predictions. We can add to that Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to folks 11 times in those 40 days following his resurrection before his ascension. Five times on this Easter Sunday. Six times after that. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the women, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, in the, next cha- the, the rest of this chapter, and then to Simon Peter, to the apostles a couple times, to seven disciples who were fishing at the Sea of Tiberias, to the 11 disciples in Galilee. He appeared to more than 500 as, at once. We have that recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He appeared to James by himself and to the apostles on the day when he ascended into heaven. We can add to that the Apostle Paul's dramatic conversion. Paul went from persecuting the small band of Christ followers to spending the rest of his natural life preaching that Jesus actually was the resurrected Son of God and the only way for salvation for all of humanity. The rest of his life would be marked by suffering and persecution because Paul chose to follow Christ even after he had been spending his life to persecute them. And we can add to that all the apostles. They were all skeptics, as we can see in our text this morning. They didn't believe his resurrection at first, but eventually they faced persecution and gruesome death because they wouldn't renounce it. Would that many die for something that they would have known firsthand to be a lie that they themselves made up? But friends, unless you believe that there is a God who exists and has spoken to us, you will always be able to find a way to remain in your skepticism about the resurrection. The evidence has to be taken in concert with the evidence for the existence of God. 
And not just that there is a God, but that that God has spoken, that that God has entered into creation in order to reconcile all things to himself, to deal with the sin and the shame and the evil that we all know exists. We see it outside of us. We know it inside of us. To take on the punishment for that sin in our place, to defeat death, which is humanity's greatest fear, which is the curse of sin, and in his resurrection prove that the payment had been made for that sin in full. And that by trusting in his righteousness, you too can stand before that same God who exists confidently despite your sin because of Christ's faithfulness. And when you bring all that together and you turn that key of the entire gospel message into your personal knowledge of the weight of your own sin, even for the skeptic, there's a sliver of hope. What if that were true? And your heart becomes strangely warmed, and his gospel begins to resurrect your own soul with gratitude towards God and love towards others. You begin to build your life around Jesus' words of life. He anticipated his own resurrection. And his word tells us that his bodily resurrection to eternal life is a foretaste of our own bodily resurrection to eternal life. And maybe that, that hasn't happened to you yet. Maybe you've heard this and you're still perplexed. Maybe you'll go home this afternoon still marveling. If you're still perplexed and marveling and you want to talk about it, I will be in the lobby after the service we have free Bibles in the lobby at the welcome desk. There's a great little track that we have there for you too, just explaining the gospel. You can grab those. We'd love to give you one at the welcome desk on your way out. Next Sunday, we're starting our connections class, which we'll just meet up those stairs over there at 9.15, a three-week class. The first week, we're just studying our statement of faith, what it is that we believe here together at Trinity Bible Church, and I'd be glad to meet with you there to answer any questions that you might have as well. For the Christian... Our sins, our failures in the Christian life very often spring from the fact that we either forget or do not know the words of Jesus. How can you make an effort to more consistently remember his words as the angels have so carefully instructed us to do in this text this morning? You can remember the life itself is found in the words of Jesus. All of them, that's not just the red letters. They are all his words from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New. So much that we find puzzling and perplexing in life comes clear when we rightly remember and understand God's word. That's why in the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 2, Luke talks about gathering the evidence as this investigator. He's gathering evidence from the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. The word is so central even to the angels, to this account of the resurrection. Our discipleship as followers of Christ will be contingent upon our knowledge of his word. We ought to make every effort to persist in remembering Jesus' words so that we can move from being perplexed to being joyful. That's what happened to these women at the tomb. Notice that they run back to explain what had happened to the 11 other remaining disciples and the others who are with them. And point four, 
Jesus' empty burial cloths pointed to his resurrection. Verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The women's words sounded like an idle tale, which is a very polite way to say that it was a bunch of nonsense. The apostles, Jesus' closest friends who had heard this teaching, hear this message from these women who have just returned to the grave, and you can have to imagine what that must have been like. They must have been running back to the place where they were meeting, screaming, you guys will never believe (laughs) what just happened. Okay, what now? So the tomb was empty. What happened to the body? Did somebody steal the body? Oh, the angel said that the body was gone because he's not dead anymore, right? And they reminded you what Jesus said about being raised on the third day? I mean, yeah, I remember him saying that. Do you really think that that was what he was talking about? Wasn't that metaphorical? That's a lot to take in at one time for those apostles. And pretty much all of the rest of his followers did not believe them. Even though they had heard Jesus' message a thousand times over the years, they still didn't quite understand it yet. But the clear truth of the situation landed like nonsense on these men who had known the words of Jesus and were so close to him. Maybe you've had that experience with family members or friends. People that you know in real life where you share the good news and they turn away from you or they, they close their ears, they refuse to listen. Well, friends, we can be encouraged, actually, this morning. That's what Jesus' closest followers did, too, at first. We're helped by the very real and raw human way that the resurrection account is recorded for us in the Gospels. The disbelief of the apostles and the disciples helps us in our own disbelief. They want the same evidence that we want. And so they went to search it out. And so Luke records for us that Peter ran to the tomb to see that this was true. He heard it, didn't believe it, wanted to see it. And of all the people who would have loved to have seen Jesus again, just to get another chance to to catch up with him, man, Peter must have been at the top of that list. He had denied even knowing Jesus three times in order to save his own neck That third time, of course, when he did it, he locked eyes with Christ himself and recognized that he did exactly what he promised he wouldn't do. Jesus told him he would do. He did it. And he weeps bitterly. Would he have to spend the rest of his life with that guilt, with that shame, knowing that his last conversation with Jesus that he knows of was actually him rejecting Jesus? You can imagine that Peter would want to know if Jesus was alive. He would love to have a better conversation than that with him. And so Peter rushed to the tomb, and he too found it empty. He didn't see the angels. There's no record of that here. All the evidence that he had to go on were the cloths that they had used to wrap up Jesus' body when they put it in the tomb on that Friday night. Those cloths were still there. If grave robbers had come to steal the body, they probably wouldn't have unwrapped it first. 
But there's the empty shroud like an empty shell laying where his body used to be, another evidence that he was there and is no longer. So Peter went home marveling at what had happened. It's hard to say whether or not Peter actually believed what he saw in that moment. Marveling could be marveling in belief. Marveling could be like, I don't even know what that is yet. Give me a minute. But if Jesus was alive, this is probably what Peter was thinking through, marveling about. If Jesus was alive, that means that he would have a chance to be reconciled to him. Uh, He would have a chance again to speak to him, to repent, and to affirm his love for the Savior three times. And we know that he got that opportunity. Friends, he is alive. And that means that you too have a chance to be reconciled to him. And in so doing, you can be reconciled to your maker. What peace and comfort that thought must have brought Peter to have that moment of peace and love and affirmation with Christ. What comfort might it bring you to know that you can be made right with your creator? The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question and gives a great response in question uh, 34, I think. It's appropriate for us to ask and answer this morning. The question is this, 57, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? The answer, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head, but also my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul, and made like Christ's glorious body. This last week, my daughter was here uh, climbing around in trees, and she ripped her hoodie as she was falling out of a tree. And so uh, the next day, we were stitching up where her sleeve had come apart. And so we took the needle and the thread threaded the needle and pushed the, the, the needle through the material so that the thread would be guided through the material and began to stitch it up and she picked up the rest and, and finished it out for us. Believers are like the thread to Jesus' needle. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus entered into death and came out the other side And he will draw all those who are united by faith with him through the veil and out the other side into life everlasting. Upon death, the Christian goes to be with Christ. And at the resurrection of the dead, our bodies will be like his resurrected and glorious body. My encouragement to you this afternoon, perhaps in your own mind as you're marveling, perhaps over your Easter ham this evening, Ask and answer this question. What other comforts might be yours if the resurrection of Jesus were true? What would it be like to live in your body no longer ravaged by sin, sickness, and death? What would it like to behold Christ, not only with the eyes of faith, but within your own body? Jesus Christ is our living hope. 
Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ.